message was recorded at River City Church. Grace be to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. about this message, speaking it for the next two hours or so, praise the Lord. So we do have a PowerPoint this morning. I'll get you to put up the first slide there, Peter. You know, PowerPoints, I have sort of mixed feelings about PowerPoints, you know, because uh, it tends to mean that you have to follow the trail you've led out. So uh, you can't really go down a rabbit trail. I've got to sort of stick to what I had prepared to say, which isn't a bad thing if what you've prepared to say is okay. <laughs> So I want to read this morning, and if you have your Bibles too, you can turn to Romans 9. We're going to read the last few verses of Romans 9 and the first few verses of Romans 10, realizing that uh, in those days, there was no such thing as a chapter break. I've got it up on the screen as well for those of you who've got very good eyesight, all right? So this is Romans 9. We're going to read from uh, verse 30, and this is a passage really all about righteousness, Romans 9 from verse 30 says, What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness of faith. But Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, has not attained to the law of righteousness. Why? Because they did not seek it by faith, but as it were, by the works of the law. For they stumbled at that stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness which is of the law. The man who does these things shall live by them. But the righteousness of faith speaks in this way. Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven. That is to bring Christ down from above. Or who will descend into the abyss That is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Praise God. Look at those first verse, again, the first two verses, Romans 9. It talks about the Gentiles who um, did not pursue righteousness and yet received righteousness. And then it speaks about the Jews who did pursue righteousness and didn't receive righteousness. So it seems that this word pursue is quite important. What does that word mean? Well, the Greek word pursue is uh, dioko. It means to run after to press after, but actually Strong's definition says that this word means to press after so hard it can be used and expressed as to persecute, to persecute. 
Now, I found that very interesting when I read it, because throughout history, when people get it into their heads that righteousness with God is something to be pursued, a state that can be pressed after with all the strength of our flesh, they inevitably end up persecuting somebody else who they see isn't pursuing righteousness in the way that they think righteousness should be pursued. The Pharisees persecuted Jesus. They persecuted him. They pursued him. They pressed him. Why? Because they didn't think he was pursuing righteousness the way they were pursuing righteousness. They were right. He didn't have to. He knew who he was. Praise God. Even today among believers, it's quite common to see some believers who have lost the revelation that they're in right standing with God entirely by grace through faith in Christ, begin to persecute with their words other believers who they feel are not as holy as they are. Now, there's a longer explanation for that in the little book there under the title Understanding the Law. But basically, if you believe yourself to be holier than the Christians down the road, then you have gone back to trying to attain or pursue righteousness by works. You've gone back under the law. That's actually what that tenet, one of the tenets of the apostolic church, talks about the possibility of falling from grace. And the teachers will tell you that's got absolutely nothing to do with sin. When you sin, you do not fall from grace. You fall into grace. Praise God. What it means is falling from grace is falling from that place where now you're insisting that, in fact, in your eyes, the life of Christ in you is not your righteousness, but your life for Christ is going to be your righteousness. What you do for him and what you don't do, that's going to be your righteousness. That's falling from grace. In the story of the prodigal son, you remember the elder brother was very, very angry because he had sought to pursue right standing with his father. And that's what righteousness means, right standing with God to be right with God. And he had sought to pursue it and then was extremely angry that the father appeared to give right standing, the ring, the cloak, the shoes, to the brother who did nothing to attain it. The one who did not pursue it received it and the one who persecuted his brother who pursued it did not receive it. That's very important. The gospel then, that righteousness is the free gift of God, has always been an offense to the religious mind. Certainly been an offense to my mind for many years. And it is sad to see how much, as it were, and how easily we are as believers offended. I have been offended many times by people. And the Lord has showed me, in fact, what's at the root of that. We used to run a course here in the church called The Bait of Satan. And it was a very good course. It was 12 weeks on teaching Christians the importance of not taking Satan's bait, the bait of offense, Because if you take offense, it will shut you down to receiving, you know? I'm very aware of this. Obviously, um, you see, I guess really the more expectations you put on somebody, the higher your expectations on them, the more they fall below your expectations. That's called the offense gap. So you'll find, in fact, it's quite common sometimes for believers to say something like, you see my milkman? He treats me better than some of those Christians do. That's because there's no expectations on the milkman, whereas all the expectations has been put on the Christians. So when they fall below that expectation level, that's your offense. Uh, the sad thing about that course, is a very good course, but I discovered that even me going through that course, and I saw many other people going through that course, it wasn't enough 
to learn techniques as to how not to take offense. That never st- Most people who went through that course took offense at the end of the day. So I discovered, in fact, that the best way to be free from offense is to entirely lift my expectations off people. Stop looking to people to give me what I need. Stop looking to people to provide for me, and especially stop looking to people to give me my sense of worth, my sense of identity, who I am. Because if you keep doing that, all you're doing is you're setting yourself up for offense. You think about the people that you're offended with this week. How long will I give you? We're offended at them because they should have given us our value. They didn't value us. They haven't given us what we feel we need. They never valued us. They never treated us right. The world is never going to give you your true worth. I'll tell you that now. It'll save you a lot of agony. Nobody in this world, really in the flesh, is going to give you your true worth. Even if you become the most famous or the richest person in the world. Because no one in this world can give you a name higher than God has given you through Christ. A child of God. A son of God. Nobody can give you a name higher. That's why, in fact, if you became a billionaire, praise the Lord. <laughs> if you became a billionaire, you would have no peace from the Holy Spirit if you took that as your identity. No peace. Because God could not be happy at you settling for such a low position as a billionaire when he lifted you to be a son of God. That's a revelation. That's a revelation. When you get a revelation, you see, that sets you free from trying to strive to take things to yourself to be somebody. You don't need money to be somebody. If you're a believer, you are in Christ Jesus absolutely of infinite value to God. That's what the cross shows us. Praise God. That sets us free. The more we see the cross, the more we get that perspective, we're absolutely set free. So the work of the Holy Spirit is to reveal the Father... And when a man and a woman see the Father, see him for who he really is, the Father, the God who has withheld nothing from us, it lifts them up to the highest places possible to be lifted up to because they then receive the name they've been given, the name above all names. His life is our life. When Christ, who is your life, when he appears, you shall be like him. This is a supernatural message. It gives you an entirely different perspective on life Because you can live from a name, a family name, that is higher than any other name on the earth. The name of Jesus. That's our family name. When we talk about people's perspective in life, sometimes there's a phrase people use. Oh, he's a glass half empty person. And she's a glass half full person. But you know, when you understand the gospel, when those who will receive the leading of the Holy Spirit, that they are sons of God, you can have a totally different perspective in life. You're not a glass half full or glass half empty. You are a glass overflowing person. Because the cross is the greatest overpayment in history. God didn't just meet your need. He overmet your need. For a lifetime of sin, you got an eternity of righteousness. That's the greatest overpayment in history. And when we get a perspective on that, it changes our mindset. When you look at every day of your life, irrespective of what happens in that day, it's not half empty, it's not half full, it's overflowing. Every day is overflowing with the goodness of God. That's why Paul and Silas could be in that jail, chained and beaten and bleeding, and start to sing to the Lord, because they were overflowing with the praises of God. Moses wrote that the man who strives to achieve righteousness, he lives 
by the name he's made for himself. So everything and every one of us live by a certain name. And all the gospel and all the Holy Spirit is, is helping us to do is to receive the name that God gives us. Because when we live by that name, oh my goodness, you can't be the same person. Sometimes people in the natural try to take on a new name for themselves to make their life a little bit more extraordinary. Maybe they think their usual name is too ordinary. I was thinking during the week about a, a young girl who was a singer here in Derry in the 60s. And her name was Rosemary Brown. You remember her? Now, Rosemary Brown decided, and someone decided for her, it would be better, in fact, if she changed her name to Dana. Dana sounds a more extraordinary name than Rosemary Brown, you know? In fact, Dana was the nickname they gave her in Thornhill. It means cheeky in Irish, you know? So she took the name Dana. And under that name, Dana, she achieved great success. But I remember her telling the story years later that one day her children had been to school and they had heard somebody call her Dana. So one of her children came home and said, Hey, Dana. And her mother sat her down and said, Listen, dear, anybody can call me Dana. You get to call me a very special name. You get to call me Mummy. Nobody gets to call me Mummy except special people. You know, Jesus' disciples went to him and said, Lord, how are we going to get something out of this Father? He said, Let me tell you how you pray. Our Father. Our Father. That's a revelation. And that's the revelation of the gospel. That in Christ, you are blood with him. You are closer to him than to your natural family. Unless you believe that natural blood is greater than the blood of Jesus. Unless you believe that your natural DNA is more powerful than the Holy Spirit who's been placed in you now as your spiritual DNA. Now, this is a revelation that the Holy Spirit comes to give us. Because when we realize how close he is with us, praise God, you cannot be the same person. You simply can't. A person's perspective is often described, really, as that attitude to life. And when we get a revelation of how close God is to us, that he has completely exchanged all of our sins for his righteousness. There's that beautiful scripture, 2 Corinthians 5.21. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Only from a transformation of being can there be a genuine transformation of doing. So religion gets that the wrong way around. We keep saying that if we start doing holy things, we'll eventually be a holy person. The gospel says that if you will allow the Holy Spirit to reveal Christ in you as a believer, as your holiness, then you'll start to think as a holy child of God. And the Bible says that as a man thinks, so he is. Religion says, as you do, so you are. The gospel says, no, as a man thinks, so he is. So here's the gospel. In Christ, you have the mind of Christ. You have the wisdom of Christ, the righteousness of Christ, the sanctification of Christ. He is all of that to us. So as Christians then, if we do not become rooted and established in our identity in Christ as an abundantly provided for child of God, then all our doing, praying, giving, worshiping, praising, is really being born from insecurity. Because we are, in our heart of hearts, doing things for God to appease him or to move him to be better to us. And God doesn't want that. Have you, has anybody ever given you a gift and you knew in your heart of hearts they wanted something from you? We've said this several times. It doesn't feel good. It doesn't feel good to think that they're only being good to me because they want something from me. 
Now, God sees that insecurity in us. He doesn't condemn us for it. You know what he does? He gives us the comforter. The comforter will comfort you that you are absolutely, totally, freely accepted and loved by God. And reveals to us, in fact, that God never wanted to be loved for what he could do or give. So the Holy Spirit reveals that God found a way to set us free from only loving him for what he could do or give to us. And it's such a simple solution. How do you stop someone loving you only for what you can do for them or for what you can give to them? This is the answer the gospel brings. Show them that you have already done everything that needs to be done and that you have already given everything that needs to be given. That's what Calvary is for. To show us that in Christ, God give us everything that needs to be given. He withheld nothing from us. For if he did not even withhold his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him freely give us all things? Romans 8, 32. So this is what Calvary shows us. It shows us that at Calvary, God did for man everything that needed to be done and give to man everything that needed to be given to allow man to love God as he is loved by God. Freely. Freely. Righteousness is given freely, but can only be received freely. And that's why Paul said that the Jews who pursued righteousness could not receive it because they refused to receive it as a gift. Religion, self-effort, will hinder you from receiving what God has freely given. And that's what the book of Galatians is about, okay? So this morning when we read that passage, there are two types of righteousness there. The first is called righteousness, which is of the law. You'll see that in verse 5. This we could call self-righteousness. This is man-made righteousness. This is the idea of holiness, that holiness is about what you do or don't do. And how much we think of righteousness in terms of self-righteousness is seen in how easily Christians judge each other as being more or less holy according to what they're doing or not doing. So you can tell, really, once you think of righteousness as what a person does, your life will become consumed with watching yourself and watching others. That's not the best way for righteousness to manifest in a life. The Bible says that we are to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, not on ourselves, not on each other. And you can tell how much a Christian group or believers have a law, a righteousness mindset by listening to how much time they talk about what other people, especially other Christians, are doing or not doing, as opposed to talking about what God has done. Second type of righteousness, this is called the righteousness of faith. You'll see this in verse 6. This is God-gifted righteousness, our right standing with the Father. It's freely given. It's entirely by God's grace, and it's received through faith in Jesus as our righteousness, totally given to us. And the work of the Holy Spirit is to reveal to us that God's righteousness, which is his very character, his very spirit, his very love, is freely given to us in Christ. Now, as opposed to self-righteousness, the mind that thinks all the time about what I need to do or what others need to do to get the church cleaned up and holier so then God will move. A righteous by faith thinks a different way. A God-righteous mind thinks a different way and so speaks a different way. And this is what the apostle now writes about what the faith that comes by righteousness, the righteous by faith, how that speaks 
And we have to understand that the way we speak is a product of the way we think. Do you know that the pure gospel will change the way you think? It will detox you from religious thinking. A gospel that only changes what you do is not powerful enough. It must change how you think, or else the change in what you do is only superficial. That's why Jesus said to the Pharisees, you have an outside-of-the-cup ministry. You're telling people what to do. Stop that, stop that, do that, start that, do that seven times a week, do that once a year, do that, do that, stop that, and definitely don't do that. That's an outside-of-the-cup ministry. And under that, people will definitely change their behavior to try and fit in with you. But inside, they will be as dead men. Jesus said that sort of righteousness is a whitewash. It's only actually from the outside. (laughs) Supernatural direction. (laughs) By Satnav. Okay. So, a righteousness by faith mindset thinks a different way. Have we got that? If you think a different way, you will speak a different way. So a gospel that only changes what you do is not powerful enough. It must change how you think. Now take a look from verse 6 at how a righteousness by faith, a spirit-led mind thinks. This is it. But the righteousness of faith speaks in this way. Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven. That is to bring Christ down from above. Or who will descend into the abyss. That is to bring Christ up from the dead. Let me rephrase that for you. A mind that has been persuaded that righteousness is a gift does not believe that God needs to be moved. Did you see that? He doesn't need to be exhorted to come down from heaven. He doesn't need to be exhorted to rise up from the dead. Praise God. That's what the revelation of the Holy Spirit brings us. Why not? If a mind that has been persuaded that righteousness is a gift does not believe that God needs to be moved... What does it believe? Answer in the next verse. What does it say? But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. Who is the word? Who? Where is Jesus? (laughs) The more a Christian comes to see that they're saved entirely by God's grace, the more they will stop living as if God is not near them, as if he's drawn back from them, he's distanced himself from them. He has separated himself from them. And he must be moved by our prayers, by our giving, by our generous works to move himself and get back to us again. There is nothing more you are going to give to God that will move him closer to you than the blood of Jesus has already moved him. That's called the gospel. Let me say it again. It sets you free. There is nothing more you're going to give to God that will move him closer than the blood of Jesus has already moved him. Now, without that revelation, Christians remain as vulnerable today as the Galatians were to any teaching that promises you that you can move God or move his power to get the result you want if only you will do more, pray more, give more, work more, worship more, press more, persecute more. As far as I can make out from reading Scripture, there is only one more that allows Christians to receive more from God. And this is it. We need to listen more to the truth of how much we have already been given in Christ. For faith comes by, and faith is the ability to receive what has been freely given. 
And what that truth declares to us again and again is that in Christ we have been gifted all that we need. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms, all that is necessary, the Apostle Peter said, to live a godly life. So the question may arise in your mind, then why pray if not to move God? Why bother? The answer is that prayer doesn't change God. He's immutable. Prayer changes us. Prayer changes. Through prayer, we get a revelation of the truth. Through prayer, we get a revelation of the cross. Through prayer, we can begin to see what God has done. And as we rise up in that, our words change, and the authority by which we speak changes, and we become a revelation of Christ on the earth. We become the kingdom of God on the face of the earth, and that changes things. Jesus said to his disciples, when you go into a city, give this message. The kingdom of God has drawn near you. Because he said, it has pleased the Father to give you the kingdom. So you as a believer, when you walk into Ford Lane and when you walk into Derry, you walk into Moville, you can say to people, hey, the kingdom of God has come near you. Because he has given me the kingdom. I can't live that if I'm religious. You know why? I'm too busy getting myself cleaned up to worry about walking into anywhere saying the kingdom of God has come near you. This is why the Holy Spirit is bringing this revelation to the church. We need to learn to live in Christ, to live by the Spirit, by the truth that heaven sees, and that a believer has been persuaded, who has been persuaded that righteousness is a gift. He sees what heaven sees. He sees that God does not need to be moved because he sees that God already moved. He moved to us. Christ in heaven is not your hope of glory. Christ in you is your hope of glory. Here's the gospel. The Word became flesh and dwelt where? He chose to be born in a dirty stable and he chose to die on a dirty cross. So he's not afraid to live in a dirty life like yours and mine. And here's why. His righteous life sanctified that dirty old stable. So on the night he was born, it became the holiest place on the face of the earth. And his righteous life sanctified that old rugged cross. So that tree became the holiest tree that was ever planted on the face of the earth. Isn't that beautiful? And his righteous life sanctifies the life of every dirty person. So his life in them is what makes them holy. That's what makes people holy. It's a gift. Now, I didn't understand that for years because I thought that my being good was at the same level as good that God has. You being good, you on your best day, is nowhere near the required level. So to receive this gospel, you've got to come to the end of your good. You've got to come to the end of your self-righteousness. You've got to come to the end of your religion. Whatever it is, Catholic, Protestant, Pentecostal, whatever, you've got to come to the end of self-effort. You've got to see that it leads nowhere. You never even got off the starting blocks as far as holiness is concerned. So to receive this gospel of grace, you need a revelation of the holiness of God. That is nothing that you or I are ever, through ten lifetimes of going to church, ever going to achieve. Now, if you can come to the end of yourself and receive it as a gift, you can start to live an entirely new life. A life of somebody who's been blessed and received righteousness as a gift. But if you insist on establishing your own righteousness, then you cannot receive the righteousness that comes from God. When a believer is persuaded or established in the revelation that righteousness is entirely a gift of God's grace, then when they look at people caught up in sin, they won't condemn them. They will look with compassion on them, for in their hearts this truth will reign. 
There, but for the grace of God, go I. Did you hear what I said? When you see people caught up in the vilest sin, when you understand by a revelation of the Holy Spirit that righteousness is a gift and that every person is here this morning entirely by the grace of God, then we will look at people and we will say, There, but for the grace of God, go I. And that's good news. You see, the gospel says this. It said, it's not by your doing. It said, by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Your best efforts to be pious or mine cannot be added to the mix. God's righteousness does not need to be kept topped up by your piety. Our piety, our best efforts to be good, cannot move God more than the blood of Jesus already moved him to give. Yet the idea that salvation is something that was started in our lives by God, but must be finished by us, has become common among Christians in every generation. And that's because when you look at people only by the natural sight, all you can see is how unfinished they look. How unfinished I look as a person, as a father, as a husband, as a pastor. How unfinished you look. But when you look by the Spirit of God, when you look from heaven, you can see that the work has been finished. And God places people in that place, regards them like that, speaks to them in that way, that they would believe and see themselves in that way. For what changes a man is not doing better, but believing that Christ has done everything necessary. You will be who you think you are, and you will do as you think you will not do as you do. I can't say that you do as I do. I can say think as Christ thinks, for you have his mind. If we never begin to see by the Spirit of God how finished, how righteous God sees us, if we will only ever continue to see and judge ourselves in the flesh, then it seems to us that the obvious thing we should do is roll up our sleeves and try harder to be holier. Here's the problem with doing that. If you're going to clean yourself up and keep yourself clean, then your attention, your focus, your gaze is going to be on you. And that is not how righteousness manifests. I'm not preaching, you see, against holiness unto the Lord. I'm saying there's a better way for the holy life of God to manifest in a believer. And here it is. Fix your eyes on Jesus, who is not just the author of your faith. He is the, he is the perfecter. You see, he didn't start you in this journey and said, well, I'll give you a good start there. On you go. You've got 30 years to get it right. He didn't do that. He finished the work. When he gave you his presence, he gave you total, the total holiness, the total package. You know, we've said it so often, a woman who is pregnant is not half pregnant. No woman calls herself half pregnant. You are pregnant. From the moment the seed is there, you are pregnant. When you receive Christ, you are pregnant with the holiness of God. You have that within you, praise God. And the more you hear this beautiful message, the more that manifests in your life. That's why the fourth tenet of the apostolic church is the justification and sanctification of the believer by the finished work of Christ, not by anything we do. You're not sanctified, you're not made holy by your Christian disciplines. It's good to pray, but praying isn't what saves you. The blood of Jesus saved you. It's good to study. Studying the word, though, doesn't save you because the blood of Jesus saved you. It's good to go to church. But going to church doesn't save you. The blood of Jesus saved you. The righteousness which is of the law says, God began a good work to save you. Now you finish what he began. 
But the righteousness of faith says this. Are you so foolish after by beginning by means of the Spirit that you're now trying to finish by means of the flesh? Galatians 3.3. 3. So the righteousness which is of the law only sees in the natural realm and so only sees everything and everyone is unfinished and so attempts to finish God's work of holiness. But man's attempts to be holy are only skin deep. He can only give the appearance of holiness. He can't change the heart or the belief system. Only the truth can do that. Jesus said, you shall know the truth of what I have done and that's what will set you free. Not what you do for me, what I have done for you. We're nearly finished, folks. This is what Paul said of his dear brothers, the Jews. I bear them witness. They have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they have been ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness have not submitted to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law of righteousness to everyone who believes. And this, in those verses, is the biggest stumbling block in my life for many years to understanding righteousness by faith. Righteousness by the law looks so darn good. Who can argue with praying and fasting and giving and all? Who can argue with that? It looks so good. And as long as I'll only ever look in the natural, I won't know what true holiness is. It's not what you do. It's who's in your life. It's the presence of God in your life. Both Jesus and Paul admit that righteousness which is of the law looks good. That's exactly what makes it so deceptive. The fact that men are prepared to make great sacrifices to move God or attempt to please God has always looked good. I mean, how holy does it look to do 40 days of prayer and fasting? I'm not speaking against 40 days of prayer and fasting. I'm saying if you're going to do it, do it for a revelation of what God has done. Don't do it to move God. Because I tell you, if you're a man here today, that may sound painful, 40 days of prayer and fasting. Can I ask you, if I give you a choice between doing that and being circumcised, which would you choose? Which is the bigger sacrifice? You know what Paul said to the Galatians who are considered being circumcised Christians? He said, you're foolish. You're deceived. You're bewitched. You're totally bewitched to think that a sacrifice you're going to make is going to move God. There is nothing more you're going to give to God that will move him closer to you then the blood of Jesus has already moved him. Now, I want to finish by showing you a picture. And uh, recently, myself and Nicola went for a walk in the Fanad Peninsula. And we went for a walk on a beach. And you'll know this beach very well, no? Ballymastocker Beach in Port Salon. It was once voted the second most beautiful beach in the world. And as you walk on that beautiful beach, halfway down the beach, you get to a river that you can't cross. There's a stream there that cannot be crossed. But somebody a few years ago was good enough actually to build a bridge and put a bridge in place. It was the intention of the bridge builder that the bridge would bring people over the divide. But something happened over the years. (laughs) Can you see what happened? And for people listening on podcast, I better describe that. The bridge now does not bring you the whole way. It only brings you halfway over. And guess what you've got to do yourself to get the rest of the way? Folks, you're looking at how the gospel is preached in most churches in this country today. That's what you're looking at. You're looking at stepping stones. 
Because the righteousness of God has not been enough to make you holy. Now you have got to change. Now you've got to watch your step. You've got to walk carefully. And above all things, you must walk in balance. Be careful of this grace business. You've got to balance that with the law. You've got to balance that with your obedience to Christ. Here's the trouble with trying to be balanced. You now got to keep your eyes on yourself. I wish I'd put the other photograph up I had, but I didn't want to embarrass Nicola because I got here and I actually managed to get across. Nicola stood there and absolutely refused to move another step. And I took a photograph of her face. Her face was a picture. She looked disgusted. She looked appalled. And she looked frightened. At the thought now that what was supposed to bring her the whole way across, halfway across, you discover that you've got to do the rest yourself. Folks, that's not the gospel. That's not the gospel. And the gospel that dilutes what Christ has done and adds and starts to add other bits onto it leaves you standing, nervous, afraid. When God made that bridge, when Christ was given, that you would walk boldly through life knowing that Christ is the one who enables you to walk with your head up and to walk boldly and to walk firmly and to keep your eyes fixed on Him and not have to drop your eyes onto yourself so that you never look up long enough to see the world perishing because we're so busy trying to get holy. That's the gospel. At Calvary, God did everything. He did for man everything that needed to be done, and he gave to man everything that needed to be given to allow man to love God as he is loved by God. Freely. The gospel sets us free not to live in sin, to live in the Son. And when you live in the Son and live in the love of God, you find that the darkness in your life, the insecurity... The fears, they're at the root of every single sin they get dealt with. Because Jesus said, I'm going to take an axe to the root of the tree. I'm not going to waste time chopping at the branches. <laughs> My lawnmower's broken at the minute. Asher, give me the name of a lovely man over in Trench Road to repair his lawnmowers. I've got to go there tomorrow and get it back. Because my grass won't stop growing. <laughs> now, Jesus Christ through the gospel did not give you a lawnmower. Okay? He gave you weed all. He dealt with the root. The root is the self-life. Here's the gospel. You died. That's good news. You died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And that's why you can blossom from a totally new root. And that root being Christ. Let's pray.